Hey, Highland Church family, thanks for tuning in today. Uh, I just want to start with a disclaimer as we dive into our sermon time. I know it's Valentine's Day. Uh, However, we're not really doing a Valentine's Day message. We're just continuing on in our journey through 1 John. This was the passage Pastor Jeff asked me to preach through. So just a heads up, it's a little dense. It's not particularly around the Valentine's theme, but I think nonetheless, it's a really important passage. So with that in mind, let's just go ahead and dive in. You know, at at some point in our lives, I imagine that we've all had the experience of being majorly unprepared for an important event and feeling the frustration and kind of the fear that comes along with that. I think of a few years ago when I was going to a pastor's conference over in Chicago. I was flying from Los Angeles uh, to Moody Bible Institute in Chicago. And even though I was at this four days pastor's conference, that week I also had a lot of work I had to bring with me. I needed to write a sermon for that Sunday. I had a research paper I needed to finish up for one of my seminary classes. So it was very important for me to bring my laptop on this trip. Well, once we checked into our hotel, I realized my laptop was sitting at home, which had all my commentaries, all my books, most of my sermon that I had already written. And not only that, it had all my login for my seminary online. So that was, you know, pretty embarrassing. And then I opened up my other bag and realized I I left my toiletry bag in my bathroom as well. Not not my finest moment at adulting. And it was a little embarrassing when all the the other pastors found out and were kind of teasing me and harassing me as well. But, But, you know, that's an instance where I was unprepared and it was inconvenient, but it didn't have disastrous consequences. However, there can be things that we are unprepared for that have far worse consequences than that. I think of a guy named Ian McGuire. Now, uh, Ian McGuire, uh, he was a professional skydiver. And by his mid-30s, he had skydived over 800 different uh, successful jumps. And one of his part-time hobbies, uh, he was also a professional photographer, and he would oftentimes jump out of an airplane after an instructor who had a kind of a new person strapped to them, and he would video uh, film their descent and take pictures and all sorts of stuff and put together a, a video compilation for these clients. So one particular busy afternoon, he had three jumps scheduled back to back to back. The first jump Uh, went completely by the book. It was perfect. He got all the footage. It was great. For the second jump, he had a quick turnaround. So he ran, dumped his old video equipment, got some new ones, was suiting up, getting back into the plane. And right before he got onto the plane, the pilot uh, realized that he had forgotten to put on a fresh parachute. So he said, hey, you, you, you forgot your parachute. And he realized that and said, oh man, and I had to go back, grab his parachute. They go up, they do the second jump. Everything's fine again. Once again, he's got a quick turnaround. It's time for the third dive of that afternoon. He puts his video equipment down, grabs the next bag, jumps onto the plane. The plane reascends to 10,500 feet. The instructor and the student plunge out of the side of the plane and begin their descent. He jumps out of the plane following them. He's videotaping the entire thing. They're descending, they're descending, they're descending. It comes time for the instructor to pull the ripcord. Everything goes well. He captures that. And then Ian goes to pull the ripcord. And on the video footage, you see him reach over to the right side, 
reaching for the ripcord, but nothing's there. And then the last words that he speaks are, oh, no. Ian, before his third jump, had forgotten once again to put on a fresh parachute. And he jumped out of the plane with no chute. And he didn't realize it until that moment. Sadly, Ian came into impact with the the ground and he, he didn't survive that jump. He wasn't prepared to take the plunge out of the plane because he, he wasn't suited up. He didn't have his parachute on. Now, as we're listening to that, we probably think, how in the world could you be so careless? I mean, how in the world could you jump out of a plane and not double check and triple check that you have a parachute on? How would you be so careless to jump out and, and potentially die by just not recognizing that you have this you don't have the, the very thing that you need to survive this jump. Investigators found out that most likely Ian jumped out of the plane without realizing his chute uh, wasn't on his back because the video equipment he was wearing was probably about the same weight. And he was so used to that weight, he just assumed that he was prepared for the jump. So we're here thinking, man, how could you be so careless? But, you know, here's, here's the thing. Here's why I think this story is important. There are millions of people every single year who are far more careless than Ian. Because all of us are making a plunge as well. We're not taking a plunge out of an airplane, thankfully. But at some point, we are taking a plunge into eternity when we die and when our life comes to an end. And there are millions of people who are taking that plunge into eternity and they haven't thought about whether or not they are prepared to meet their creator and to stand before the Lord. There's a lot of people that just assume that they're ready to make the plunge thinking, yeah, I've gone to church on Christmas and Easter. Yeah, I've been a good person or I try to be nice or all these things. And they think I'm set for eternity. I'm ready to make the plunge without recognizing That if they make the plunge in the state that they're in, they're going to stand before Jesus and hear some of the most haunting words of Scripture. Depart from me, you worker of lawlessness. I never knew you. Now, like I said, I know that's a heavy introduction. But our passage in 1 John this morning kind of sets the tone. And and John encourages us closely examine our lives and ask the question this morning, am I truly prepared to make the plunge into eternity? Because in this text, John explicitly delineates those who are prepared for eternity from those who are not. He shows us the belief and behavior of those who belong to Christ. So with that background in mind, let's look at 1 John 2, and we're going to look at verses 15 through 17. Here's what John writes. He says, Do not love the world or the things in this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life, it's not from the Father, it's from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but it's whoever does the will of God that abides forever. You know, as we read through this passage, we see that John is sorting all of humanity into two categories. Later in John's letter, he uses uh, this argument that everyone is a child of someone. He says, we are either children of God or we are children of the devil. 
And all of humanity can be sorted into those two categories. There's, there's no third option. And as we look at this passage, John is kind of strategically showing us the differences that will emerge from these two different identities. I've put together a little chart that kind of traces through that idea. So if you're a child of the devil, your allegiance is to the world. You're in love with this world. Your lifestyle is going to be defined by the desires of our flesh and the lust of our eyes and the pride of life. And our destiny, he says here, they pass away. They're going to be eternally separated from God. But if you're a child of God, your allegiance is going to be a love for the Father. Our lifestyle is going to be defined by doing the will of the Father. And our destiny is abiding with God forever. So as we look at this chart, I think we can summarize a big idea, a one-sentence summary of what John's getting after here. And I think this is what John is saying. How you live reflects what you love. And what you love reveals who's your father. How you live reflects what you love. And what you love ultimately reveals who's your father. Is your father God or is your father the, the devil? So with that overview in mind, let's take a closer look at our verses. Because in our verses, John outlines three qualities that define the lifestyle of a child of God. He says, children of God are characterized by full allegiance, by faithful resistance, and by fruitful obedience. So let's consider that first quality, full allegiance, full allegiance. Look back at John's words in verse 15. He says, do not love the world or the things of this world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the father is not in him. This verse is teaching us an important spiritual reality. We can love the world or we can love God, but we cannot love both. There's no middle position. Each side demands our full allegiance. John is really deploying one of the laws of logic here called the law of excluded middle. Simplifying kind of this concept, it it basically means the law of excluded middle. When you have opposite statements, one is true, one is false, but they cannot both be true and false at the same time in the same place. For instance, our planet is either round or flat. It can't be both round and flat at the same time. That's nonsensical. Or a cup of coffee that I have in my hand, it's either hot or cold. It can't be simultaneously hot and cold at the same time. Or our Highland Church logo is either solid blue or solid orange. It can't be both solid blue and orange at the same time. This principle is true in our spiritual lives as well. We can either love God or we can love the world. But John says we cannot simultaneously love both God and the world at the same time. That's impossible. And realize why. Realize why. In scripture, whenever we see love used as a verb, it's always active, which means love always has an object. In a sense, the action of love is neutral, and what determines if it's good or bad is the object that the love is directed towards. It's the object that's decisive. If the object of our love is God, then our love, our desires, our affections, and our actions are going to be oriented towards God. But if We love the world and the world is the object of our love. Our love, our desires, our affection, our actions are going to be oriented towards the world. Which really brings us to a vital question for rightly interpreting this passage. What does John mean when he's talking about the world? What does it mean when he says, don't be in love with the world? 
Well, the, war, the word world here comes from the Greek word cosmos, and John uses cosmos in three distinct ways in his gospel and his epistles. The first way he uses it is to refer broadly to all of creation. The cosmos is just basically the created order. It's a neutral term. The second way is to broadly speak of all of humanity. That's how John uses the world in John 3.16. For God so loves humanity, the world, that he gave his only son. But a third way John uses it is by far the most common usage. And it's precisely what John means here. Cosmos, in this sense, is referring to an organized system of evil that's under the control of Satan, the evil one himself. It's referring to everything that stands in opposition to King Jesus and his values. The world is an alternative way of living that refuses to submit to God's authority and God's design. So when John is saying that we can't be in love with the world, he isn't saying that we can't enjoy nature or we can't enjoy watching sports games or we can't enjoy any type of music that's not worship music. He's not saying that. He's saying that we cannot love the path of sin and autonomy and rebellion against God's moral law that the world so often champions. I mean, think about this way. God and the world are at total opposite ends of the spectrum. And if we're standing between God and the world, the reality is to turn towards one necessitates that we turn our back towards the other. If I'm facing the world, my back's to God. If I'm facing God, my back's to the world. And what John is saying is, I can't be moving closer to both God and the world at the same time because they pull me in opposite directions. My allegiance belongs to either one or the other. And you know, that's a needed correction for a lot of American Christianity. For many decades, there's been a doctrinal drift that says we can have both God and the world. There's a lot of Christians that say, man, I want one foot in Jesus, but I want to keep one foot in the culture. And I I want to blur the boundaries between the way of the world and the way of God's word. Think about this way. I know this is a little cheesy, but bear with me. A lot of Christians want to treat their spiritual life like having a park hopper ticket at Disneyland. Now, if you were to go to Disneyland over in California, there are two entirely separate theme parks on their compound. There's Disneyland Park, and then there's Disney California Adventure. They're two separate parks, and typically when you buy a one-day ticket, you get access to one park. But if you pay a little more, of course, because it's Disney, you can get a park hopper ticket, and that allows you to go back and forth between both parks as many times as you want that day. You get the amenities and the benefits of both parks with one ticket, and you get to hop back and forth as much as you want. You know, that is a good analogy for how a lot of Christians want to live. They want the spiritual park hopper. They want to be able to jump back and forth from living and enjoying Jesus' kingdom and then jumping over and living and enjoying the kingdom of this world and going back and forth, back and forth as many times as they want. They want the benefits of the gospel without the responsibilities of the gospel. But here's the thing. The Christian life is not analogous to the spiritual park hopper ticket. Instead, it's more analogous to choosing between a day ticket for Disneyland or a one-day ticket for Universal Studios. 
In a very real sense, they are rival kingdoms. They are separate entities. They both demand full allegiance. If I buy a ticket for one, I'm not getting in the other park. They are total opposite ends of the spectrum. And that's how it is with God's kingdom. There's no kingdom hopping option. We either pledge our allegiance to God's kingdom or the kingdom of this world, but we can't have both. So if that's true, and it is, then what are the ways of the world that we renounce when we pledge our allegiance to Jesus? What are the values and behaviors that we are called to forsake for the upward call of Christ? Well, that's exactly where John goes in verse 16. He says, here's the things that define the kingdom of the world. And that brings us to the second quality of children of God. We're known first and foremost for full allegiance, but second, we're known for faithful resistance. Faithful resistance. Let's look again at verse 16 to deal with what sinful patterns all Christ followers are called to faithfully resist. Uh, These are the values and priorities that the kingdom of this world champions. It offers a competing vision of what is good and blessed in life. And John highlights three main things. He says there's the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. Now, obviously, this is not an exhaustive list of all sins, but John is giving us three main pathways that temptation enter into our lives and produce all sorts of other sins. These are the foundational mindsets that build the kingdom of this world, the the values that stand in direct opposition to God's design, God's values, and God's morality. So let's consider each one a little more closely. Value number one, the lust of the flesh. I call that one carnal cravings, carnal cravings. In verse 16, the word translated desire comes from the Greek word epithemia, which means lust. And this sense lusting means having an intense and insatiable craving for something. So lust of the flesh is describing a person who is a slave to the desires and cravings of their physical body. Here are some of the most common ways scripturally and experientially we see people being slaves to the lust of their flesh. First and foremost, this would be a person who's enslaved to their sexual appetites. Scripture is clear that God is the designer of sex. God is the first being to ever have a sexual thought since he's the one who designed it. Uh, And as Christians, we always want to affirm the goodness of the gift of sex that God has given us. However, he gave us that gift to be enjoyed within the context of a covenantal marriage between one man and one woman for life. The lust of the flesh occurs when we want to take the good gift that God has given us of sex, but use that outside of the boundaries that he has given us. It can mean gratifying sexual desires through regularly watching pornography. It could mean entertaining and imagining all sorts of lustful thoughts in our minds. It could mean buying into the world's hookup culture that says it's okay to have sex outside of marriage and make that a regular part of my dating experience. According to scripture, it could also include pursuing sexual relationships with a person of of the same gender. And we can absolutely see in our culture that this is one of the foundational values of the kingdom of this world. 
The celebration of unbiblical sexual expression is everywhere. We are in a sex-crazed culture that tells us that the only way to an enjoyable life is disobeying God's design. So that's one option, but the lust of the flesh is not just limited to sexual impulses. The lust of the flesh also encompasses any physical craving or desire that transgresses God's boundary for how that is to be enjoyed. Think about it this way. God has given us the gift of taste buds. We don't just eat to survive. We get to enjoy eating. I didn't realize how much uh, taste buds were a gift until I lost my sense of taste a couple months ago and it didn't return for a month. And no matter how delicious of a steak was sitting before me or how delicious a bowl of ice cream was, I didn't enjoy eating it because it had no flavor. It wasn't great at all. God gave us the gift of enjoying the taste of food. However, our flesh oftentimes says uh, you can never have enough of a good thing, which can lead us to transgress enjoying that good gift into the sin of, of gluttony, where we're overindulging in food for the pleasure that it brings. That could be a lust of the flesh. Another lust of the flesh could be laziness. Now, God created rest as a good gift to us. He models that in the creation narrative. The seventh day of creation was designed to be a day of rest. However, instead of using rest to renew and re-energize us to return to work, sometimes laziness views rest as the ultimate goal. And we want to forsake anything that's work or hard for a life of only enjoyment and only entertainment and only pleasure. Those are all instances of the lust of the flesh. So that's the first value. But then he moves on from carnal cravings. And look at the second value John highlights. The lust of the eyes. I call this one envious eyes. Envious eyes. John warns us that a characteristic of belonging to the kingdom of this world is an envious heart. Lust of the eyes is essentially a person who's always discontent, always envious, and always jealous. They're always looking onto the horizon of the future at the things that they don't have and they are not satisfied and not content until they get those things for themselves. They want whatever's newer, whatever's bigger, and whatever's better. Practically in our lives, that could be a person who leaves every scrolling session through Facebook or Instagram discontent and jealous of everything that everybody else has. As they scroll through those pictures, they're jealous of the tropical vacation their coworker took, They're jealous of the seemingly perfect picture marriage their college roommate has, which, you know, no one's marriage is perfect. The the difficulties of their marriage just somehow never makes it onto social media. They're daydreaming of the humongous house and thinking of how much their life would be better if they could afford a bigger, nicer house. Or perhaps it's a person who stops by the gas station on their way home every night to grab a few scratchers or Powerball tickets or the person who spends most Friday nights at the casino blowing their Friday paycheck. Well, why do they do that? Well, a lot of the times it's because the idea of getting that jackpot and getting all that money can then purchase all these things that I don't have and I've bought into the lie that if I had these things, my life would be so much better and satisfying and meaningful. Perhaps it's the man or woman who's a compulsive buyer. Every trip to the mall or every visit to Amazon ends with massive stacks of receipts and more credit card debt. Purchasing new clothes or shoes or new purses or golf clubs or whatever else has become a therapeutic way of trying to feel better. And the lust of the eye says you'll feel so much better if you just had blank. And then you swipe the credit card and it lasts for about two minutes. And then once again, the lust of 
the eye says, you know what? Never mind. You'll, you'll really be satisfied if you just had blank and the goalposts always move. So that's the second value, envious eyes. But John doesn't end there. He gives us a third value as well. He says the pride of life, the pride of life. I think ultimately what John is getting after with the pride of life is inflated egos. He's talking about people who have an artificially inflated view of their own importance and worth because of what they've accomplished or what they possess. The pride of life is a person who finds their value or worth or identity in their success, their possessions, and their positions. And John is saying that pride is the default position of the kingdom of this world. But the kingdom of God, the default position is humility. How might we be guilty of the pride of life? Maybe it's the high school athlete who thinks that they are just the envy of everybody else because of how well they've been performing in their athletic uh, areas. Maybe it's the successful business person who expects and demands special treatment and to always be in charge in every sphere of their life just because then they've been successful in the business world. Maybe it's the person who finds their self-confidence and importance and identity in wearing brand name clothes or how many degrees they have on their wall or having the newest car or the largest house in the cul-de-sac. Maybe it's the wearied middle-aged mom whose jam-packed schedule is worn as a badge of honor and busyness becomes a source of pride and self-worth reaffirming the image and the idea that I'm super mom. Pride rears its ugly head in our lives in so many ways. In our fallen flesh, we are always looking for ways to show that we matter, that we're significant, and that we're valuable. And the pride of life always tries to find our value, our significance, and our worth in our accomplishments, our intelligence, and our possessions. However, the kingdom of God totally inverts that mindset. In the kingdom of God, Jesus tells us the least is the greatest and the greatest is the least. And in God's kingdom, Jesus says, blessed are the poor in spirit, not the prideful in spirit. The kingdom of this world is all about being a self-made person, where being a child of God is all about being a Christ-reliant person. So that's our second point. Children of God are to be characterized by faithful resistance to carnal cravings, envious eyes, and inflated egos. So if the kingdom of the world is built on those values, then what instead does a child of God build their life upon? And that really brings us to the third quality of children of God. They are known for full allegiance. They're known for faithful resistance. But third, they're known for fruitful obedience. Fruitful obedience. Notice how Paul says in verse 17, it's those who do the will of God that are prepared for eternity. In the New Testament, we see this amazing metaphor of bearing fruit, oftentimes being used to show the transformation that takes place in our hearts after the gospel has taken root. When a person becomes a new creation in Jesus, salvation takes place, their sins are atoned for, they are justified, they are given a new identity. But more so than that, even more amazingly, the Holy Spirit, the, the third person of the Trinity comes and seals us for the day of salvation and empowers us for a new God-centered transformational way of living. And the longer we are following Christ and the Holy Spirit can influence our hearts, the more we're going to see something called spiritual fruit. 
And scripture kind of shows us what that spiritual fruit looks like. It's going to be putting off the pride of life, putting off envious eyes, putting off the the lust of the flesh, and instead putting on things like love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. Literally the opposite values of the children of this world. And you know, we need to grasp this concept because scripture is really clear. There's no such thing as a Christ follower who never bears spiritual fruit. There's no such thing as a Christ follower whose life is totally absent of good fruit and filled only with the things of this world that we're called to faithfully resist. And don't take my words for it. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter seven. He says, beware of false prophets. They're gonna come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly they are ravenous wolves. And here's how you'll recognize them, by their fruits. Are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles? Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but diseased trees, they bear bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruit. That's just a word picture of our big idea. Jesus is saying how you live reflects what you love and what you love reveals who's your father. If your love is defined exclusively by bad fruit, if you are enslaved to the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, if you are enamored with what the world offers and you have no desire for the things of Christ, this passage says it's diagnostic of our spiritual condition. It's pointing to the reality that you might not be ready to make the plunge into eternity. Jesus warns that trees that don't bear the fruit of salvation are going to be cut down and thrown into the fire. Don't assume that you are ready for eternity. Take a look in the mirror of this passage and ask the diagnostic questions it demands. Is my life characterized by full obedience, by faithful resistance, and by fruitful obedience? Have I truly put my saving faith in King Jesus? Or is my life characterized by a park hopper mentality, slavery to sin, and bad fruit? Now, I do want to make an important disclaimer at this moment. This passage is not saying that Christ followers are going to be anywhere near perfect in our lives. Uh, Just because we have a relationship with Christ and the Holy Spirit abides within us, that doesn't mean that we are going to be perfect. We're going to stumble, we're going to struggle, and we are going to indulge sin at moments in our life. We all have a sin nature. And this side of heaven, that sin nature is always going to be with us. And we're going to struggle every single day. And scripture highlights that many times for us. I think of Romans 7 where Paul says, I I do the things I don't want to do and the things I don't want to do, I I do them. Oh, wretched man that I am, who's going to deliver me from this body of, of, of evil, of death? I think of Galatians 5 where Paul says, we've got the the desires of the spirit and the desires of the flesh and they wage war within our heart. And there's gonna be times where we indulge the desires of the flesh. There's gonna be times where we give in to sin. There's gonna be times where we do the things that we don't wanna do. We're gonna stumble. We're gonna fall. It's gonna be a couple steps forward and sometimes almost a, a couple steps back. We'll have moments of envy. We're going to have to regularly dismantle pride in our 
hearts. So this passage is not a call for perfection. It's a passage that should have the same twin effects that Pastor Jeff highlighted last week. It should afflict those who are spiritually comfortable. It should comfort those who are spiritually afflicted. So that first part of the comfort this passage should bring, if you're out there and you do have a distaste for sin, you look in the mirror and you say, man, I am messing up in so many ways and I I dislike sin and I I want to find freedom and I'm trying and I I know I'm failing, but man, I I don't want to live that way. This passage is saying, realize that the love of the Father is in you, giving you that distaste. Realize this passage is not here to condemn you, but to remind you to keep faithfully resisting even when it's hard. But if you're out there and you're spiritually comfortable and you look in the mirror and you, have, you really don't have a love for Jesus or a desire to live for him, if your life is characterized by enslavement to the lust of your flesh and your eyes and pride, if you see no spiritual fruit as you look in the rear view window of your spiritual journey, if pleasure and personal success are the sole focus of your life, this is a passage that should afflict your spirit. Don't be deceived. There's no such thing as a worldly Christian. Those who practice such things habitually will not inherit the kingdom of heaven. You're not ready to take the plunge into eternity. So if this passage is revealed that you're not ready to take the plunge into eternity, please Don't turn off this stream until you have given your life to Jesus. Investing your life in the kingdom of God is the best thing you could ever do. And investing your life in the kingdom of this world is the worst possible way to invest your life. I know the world seems alluring in the short term, but remember where it's headed. Think about it this way. Let's say that I offer you right now a two-week, all-expense-paid Uh, vacation. I'll fly you down to Miami, Florida. I'll put you on Royal Royal Caribbean's nicest boat and you get to island hop through the Caribbean for the next two weeks. All expenses paid, great shows, great food, buffet, everything you could want. However, here's the catch. Right before the boat re-enters the port of Miami, it's going to hit submerged rocks, capsize, fill with water, and everybody on board is going to die. Would you take me up on that offer? No, right? Because no matter how great those two weeks are, it's not worth dying for. It's not, that, that's a terrible investment. Realize that's the investment the kingdom of this world offers you. You get a short enjoyment of the things it offers, but in the end, it leaves you, it leads you to eternal shipwreck. And realize that you don't have to endure that shipwreck. There's a lifeboat that you can get off right now. And that lifeboat is putting your trust in Christ and becoming his child. Do not be in love with the world. Be in love with the Father, knowing how great his love has been for us. Make sure your trust is in Jesus. Make sure you're ready to take the plunge into eternity this morning. Let's pray. Father, as we think through this passage, it is provoking, it is convicting. It's a reminder that we can't assume that we are ready for eternity. Father, if there's anybody listening to this stream who looks at their life and they see that it's defined by the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, help them to see that that is not the way to invest their lives. There's a better way, the way of Jesus. And right now, if you are working their hearts, I pray that you help them to call out and know the truth that if anyone calls on the name of the Lord, they will be saved. 
Father, we're so grateful that you delivered us from the kingdom of this world and we are guaranteed if our trust is in Christ that we will spend eternity with you. Help us to live as people who are in love with Christ and putting off the things of this world. Strengthen us in our journey this week. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Thanks so much for joining us this morning. Have a great rest of the week.